Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Taking a Walk podcast, music history on foot, and I'm Buzz Knight. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. And when you click follow, that guarantees that you're never going to miss an episode. Kindly share with a friend. Today we have the bassist and keyboard player from a Canadian band that defined arena rock in its four decades. He's a dear friend for many years. Please welcome Mike Levine to Taking a Walk. Well, Michael, Stephen Levine, it's so awesome to uh, have you on Taking a Walk. I only wish we could uh, be in person, but uh, what joyous part of the globe are you in? I have been uh, uh, the grill to Jamaica. And it is a beautiful, sunny day, and I'm on the beach. I could just detect the smile on your face when you say that. Yes, and I also smiled, though it's ever, ever, in all the years I've been doing interviews, referred to me as Michael Stephen Levine. So you you win the award, my friend. (laughs) So let's disclose first that I got to know you from uh, being a regular attendee of uh, the Superstars Radio Convention led by our mutual friend, Lee Abrams. I, I remember being either in the, uh, the bar line or the, the chow line, and when I would see you, I knew the convention would be ultra fun if you were uh, in the house. Um, we had a lot of laughs, and we probably 
dented ourselves a little bit in the process, but it sure was a lot of fun. Yeah, those were uh, those were very heady days. Uh, I have I have incredibly fond and also headachy memories from those conventions. But uh, just the opportunity to hang with uh, you know all the radio guys and some of the artists that actually did show up was it was just amazing for me. Yeah, do you remember some of the artists that were there? I remember a few of them. I remember hanging in the A and M suite. I remember hanging with Robert Palmer for an extended period of time. Uh, he was probably the most opinionated artist I ever met. <laughs> That's funny. I remember Robbie Robertson, uh, a fellow uh, Canadian uh, hanging around there. Do you remember him? Yeah, I remember Robbie being there. I remember David Lee Roth being there. I remember being in a bathtub with David in somebody's tweet. But we had our clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, Bob and Doug McKenzie, your uh, your fellow Canadians, were there one time. Do you remember that? I don't remember them being there. No, I, I, I have no recollection of that. But there's a plus. There's a lot of things I don't remember, <laughs> especially about then. <laughs> oh my God, me too. <laughs> Um, all right, we're going to talk later about the Triumph documentary, Rock and Roll Machine. Uh, we're going to touch on the tribute album as well and uh, limited edition uh, cool things that you've got available. But first, um, let's start at the beginning. When did you know that you were you were hooked being a musician? I don't know. I guess maybe when I saw the Beatles uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And uh, I probably might have been, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old, I guess, at that point, 63 or 4, whatever that was. I just looked in awe at, the, at this band that you couldn't hear for all the girls screaming. And then I looked at all the girls screaming, and I said, I want to be a musician. That's how you get girls. <laughs> that was it, right? <laughs> Pretty much, Yeah. <laughs> Now, who were some of the other influences uh, musically that uh, shaped you around that time? Oh, I was, uh, me and my buddies, we had little high school bands, part-time bands, kind of. and um, We were very R&B oriented. So it was Sam and Dave and Wilson Pickett and Syl Johnson and Aretha Franklin and Irma Franklin. And, you know, just we used to, uh, because there was no, black people in Toronto. Um, and the top 40 station was Chum, which was a very famous station. But they listed like Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett as number one, but they never played the record. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. So we had, we had to listen to Buffalo Radio to hear, the, hear the, the songs. So it'd be WUFO, the big UFO. And w later when FM started happening, WBLK FM. So we'd hear the songs, and there was one store in downtown Toronto that carried the singles. So we used to head down there on the weekends because we lived in the suburbs and just hang out and, and look at the singles that came in that week. And the ones that we had heard on the radio, we bought and we learned and we played in the band. So those were big, huge influences, really, the R&B guys. And, of course, you know, the Beatles, the Stones. Uh, even Herman's Hermits, for, for for lack of a better band in those days. But the Who and the Yardbirds and 
just you know, all those bands were amazing. So, so you'd listen to them and try and clap their legs and be as good a players as they were, which of course was pretty much impossible in those in those days. But uh, yeah, it influences for everything because there was no FM radio, right? It was strictly top forty. So describe that uh, chance meeting with Rick Emmett and Gil Moore in Toronto that uh, led to the band Triumph. That was uh, 1975, right? Uh, yes, you have the year absolutely correct. So uh, Gil and I were in a part-time band together. And, you know, we played high schools on weekends. It was a cover band. We been good, good though. Um, but then it was like, you know, he, he suckered me into playing with him. He was, I didn't want to do it, but he, he basically conned me into just playing, you know, for a few weeks because <laughs> I was doing other things at that point. Um, so, uh, you know, I started to like the playing part. It was kind of neat. Uh, we sat down one day, just him and I, and I said, look, I can't do this anymore. Either we try and get something serious going or I'm going to have to, you know, go back to, you know, writing and producing jingles, which is what I was doing. He said, okay, so we'd brainstorm, you know, a bottle of scotch or whatever over the course of a few weeks and decide, okay, we're going to have a three-piece band. It's going to be a la Jimi Hendrix, a la Led Zeppelin, a la Deep Purple, uh, hard rock, heavy metal, whatever you wanted to call it. I don't think anything had terminology back then. But, uh so you got a guitar player, sorry, a bass player and a drummer, but, you know, you need a guitar player. So we had auditioned a bunch of guys um, uh, just to see if we could, A, get along and B, play with them. And nothing seemed to be working. And then uh, with guys that we knew, their managers and agents uh, suggested that, you know, we go check out this guy named Rick Evans playing the band called Act 3. And they're playing this weekend at whatever club it was, but I can't remember now. So we went, okay, and we went and checked them out. And they were playing, uh, you know, Gentle Giant and Queen, early Queen, you know, really kind of a complex prog rock stuff. And uh, they were pretty good. And Rick was amazing. And Gil and I kind of looked at each other, and Gil says, yeah, he's really good, but do you think he can play da 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 whole lot of love, right? They go, hey, if he can play that, he can play a whole lot of that, all right? It's not going to be a problem. So Rick came over and sat down with us, and uh, we, could, we chatted and uh, decided that, okay, let's get together and, and play a little bit, see how the vibes are. And that seemed to work out just fine, and uh, the rest kind of is history. I like how you focused on, hey, let's see if we could get along first. That was that was really the priority, right? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, you know we, that's what we did uh, pretty much all the way through our career. Like, okay, you know, so we got a band now. What are we going to do? So we're playing high school, so that was easy. Um, but then we need to go on the road and see what we could do. So we went on a <laughs> agent booked us a tour of northern Ontario. Okay, now I don't know if you've ever been up there, but it'd be like. Um, Places like Thunder Bay, Ontario, and Sault Ste. Marie, and North Bay, and Sudbury, and God knows where else. And it's in the winter. It is really fucking cold. So we, we, we get there, and there's no gigs. So we're going, okay, we're here. We have nowhere to play. 
the agent just made it all up. So we uh, went to the university and said, hey, you guys got beer night? Yeah, okay, we're going to play, okay? Yeah, just give us the door or whatever, pay us beer. I uh, went to a club that was up there, and they said, hey, we'll play for food. <laughs> and, and, and we lived through that experience. We were up there for, I don't know, five or six weeks. And we lived, and we laughed, and we had, we had, I couldn't say we had the most fun ever, but we made fun of a really horrible situation. So, again, it was like, hey, you, you, you got to live, the, you know, through the shitholes to, you know, to play the dice places. And we managed to do that. So then 1979, this release called Just a Game comes out, and it's, it's, uh, it's breakthrough, hold on, lay it on the line, uh, songs that are uh, still staples out there for uh, classic rock and rock stations. So were you guys surprised at the success of Just a Game? Nothing ever surprised me. <laughs> to be honest with you, I went, hey, we're either going to, it's, it's kind of like being in a band, it's kind of like going to Vegas if you're a gambler. So, you know, once in a while you hit blackjack, but as soon as you pick up your chip and walk away from the table, you can't get lucky. So we got really lucky with that record. It was a very good record. We're very proud of that record. But as you know, a lot of great records just never got promoted right. You know, lousy record company, um, uh, you know, manager pissed off president of record company. <laughs> you know, that was like you weren't the number one priority. You weren't even the number three priority with the promo department. So um, we managed to lobby. RCA Records was, was amongst the worst labels in the business. So, but they had a couple of guys there that were, were believers. Head of marketing was a guy named Dick Carter. And he believed in the band. He said, we're going to make this happen. And uh, we managed to extract a whole whack of dough out of them. <laughs> we just bullshitted. We made videos. We, we used TV commercials. Nobody else was doing that kind of thing. And MTV didn't exist. <laughs> but, you know, half a million bucks later, um, we had songs on the radio. And people were paying attention to this band called Triumph. But it was really difficult for you guys to break into the U.S., wasn't it? Um, yes and no. Uh, you know, another three-piece band from Toronto um, uh, had kind of led the way, so to speak. We were able to follow uh, how they did it and, and learn from the mistakes they made early on in their career because we were maybe three years behind them. I can't remember their name. Oh, yeah, it was Drush. No, I said <laughs> So I got on a plane and went to went to see uh, I don't know five or six promoters, and, and I walked in. I, you know, our agent at that point we had a U.S. agent had already to try it. Uh, Troy Blakely, you may remember his name, rest his soul. He was became a very powerful guy in the business. Um, so Troy set up meetings for me with Bill Graham and Brian Murphy at Avalon Attractions and. In L.A., uh, Jules Belkin in Cleveland, and uh, Louis Messina. And I went around to all these guys and said, look, um, you never heard of us, but we're going to want to come in your market and headline. And <laughs> Bill, Bill Graham threw me out of his office. <laughs> really? I said, I, I said, but Bill, here's a codicil, okay? Here's the deal. Like, we're going to pay for all the advertising, okay? We got a $25,000 budget for TV and radio. 
It's like, and if the show loses, buddy, we'll we'll write you a check for half the loss. And Bill said, "You're absolutely out of your fucking mind. Get out." <laughs> so I'm walking back to my rent a car in the parking lot at, at BGP, and Danny Share and Greg Perloff, who both became you know very famous promoters, and Greg still runs uh, AEG, I think. They came running after me and said, don't pay attention to Bill. It's not his idea. He doesn't like it. But, you know, we're, we're all in. We're, we're going to do this. I said, great, fantastic. So I felt really good about that. So, I, you know, my balls got bigger. My dick got harder. And <laughs> <laughs> the next guy with me, Brian Murphy, I said, Brian, this is a lay down. Bill Graham's in on this, okay? So it's like you got to come in too, and and sure every promoter Jerry Michelson in Chicago, everybody bought in, and there wasn't one promoter that made money. Everybody lost money, which was okay, because they came in the dressing room after the show and they were honest about how much they lost and try and steal money from us, and and we wrote that Rick Mike and Gil each signed a check for half the loss. The only time in history an act has signed a check to a promoter for a loss, ever. So those guys became our friends. And they worked radio on our behalf. Uh, they did everything they possibly could to make the band successful in their marketplaces. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, it took a couple of times through, but then we're playing the big building. Wow. What a great story. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... Uh, Thunder 7, you worked with Eddie Kramer, the legendary uh, engineer and co-producer. Uh, quite a history, obviously, with uh, some bands that uh, we might have heard of that he worked with. What was it like working with Eddie Kramer? When you, when you look up the, with the phrase piece of work in the dictionary, there's a picture of Eddie right there. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun to work with. But Eddie was really quirky. We nearly came to fisticuffs many, many times. But it was all for the better. You know, at the end of the day, the record got better because, you know, Eddie insisted on something, and I told him, you're dreaming, you know, you're, you're, you're brain dead, your ears don't work anymore. He goes, yes, they do. You're the, the problem is you. <laughs> don't, you know, don't you know who I am? I said, really, I don't care who you are. This isn't your record. This is a triumph record. <laughs> <laughs> it became a, a you know a battle of wills, so to speak. And you know, Eddie won a few, and I won a few, and uh, you know, Rick won a few, and uh, you know, the record ended up being good. But I learned a lot from Eddie, like on the uh, technical basis, and you know, sound wise, uh, you know, audio wise, how to, how he likes stuff, and you know, and just listening to the, the Zeppelin stories, you know, it was a lot of fun. It was it was worth the money we paid him, really, just for the stories. So you guys defined really this category. You you were part of creating this category, kind of uh, arena rock, I guess I would call it, um, which included a lot of like lasers and explosions and things of that nature. Uh, where did you where did you get the idea for that type of uh, stage persona? Well, going back to how we started our little walk here. Um, uh, it was that was the idea from the beginning was to have a big show, 
You know, our feeling was, you know, imagine going to a Broadway play and there's no lighting and there's no there's no audio and there's no light and dark, you know, kind of thing. You know, if there's no lighting and no excitement, you know, just watching three guys on stage standing there like looking like goofballs with no, you know, no kind of theatrical presentation around it was really not a very bright business plan. So uh, right from the beginning, we overamped on everything. We bought our own lighting system. We took the biggest lighting system known to bars into bars. Um, we took pyro, and nobody used pyro in, you know, in bars. We used pyro in bars. Uh, we got a reputation as being a, uh, you know, a, a, you have to see this band. It's like we were totally unique. And uh, uh, both the music we played, which was, you know, we copped uh, Zap and uh, Purple and Hendrix, and then we'd do a set of our own. And that's how we ended up with fans. But the whole show thing was... Uh, an essential thing. Anytime we had extra dough, okay, um, uh, what are we going to add this time? We're going to add more flash pots. Are we going to go for lasers? Can we afford it? Who cares if we can afford it? Let's do it anyway. Uh, we were into the big show from the beginning, but not just for the sake of doing it. It was always, okay, how do we use it to enhance the music? So, you know, uh, dark makes light look great. Light makes dark look great. Uh, quiet makes loud sound great. Loud makes quiet sound great. So, uh, you know, old adage from uh, Jerry Wexler, who I got to have the pleasure of meeting, was this, this is people don't always hear with their ears, they hear with their eyes, too. And, and that's definitely true. So, uh, the visual part of our show was there to enhance the music. And that's how we paced the show. It was you know, up and down, and then, you know, like on a good graph. Okay, it started off here, and here's the chart on the stock. It started at a buck, and now it's at 120. But it didn't go all the way to the top straight up. There was lulls in its progression. And that's how we, we programmed the show to be. So what was the thinking behind uh, you guys um, building Metalworks Studio? Um, where were you, your aspirations at that time? Uh, so that was prior to the Allied Forces record. So um, we had done the Progressions of Power record, which didn't do as good as we thought it might. But, you know, not deterred at all. Uh, we continued on. And, uh, we, you know, we need to be able to uh, have a place where we could do demos. That would be very helpful. So I'm on vacation. And we had a, a warehouse and you know, with a couple of little offices in front of it. And in the warehouse, we stored gear and we rehearsed them, but it was a warehouse. Uh, one, one day, Gil Kai was like in Jamaica, actually. Gil calls me and says, hey, what do you think about setting up a demo studio in the warehouse? And I said, hey, if you want to take that on, buddy, you know, you price it out. So he went to work and... Uh, uh, he phoned me a week later. He goes, well, it doesn't make sense if we don't have a controller, a little controller. And I said, yeah, you're right. Okay, let's let's go for it. week later, he calls me. You know, I can get this deal, a sponsorship deal on these on these MCI desk recording console and 224-track machines. I went, you can? He said, yeah, it's an unbelievable deal. I said, okay, it sounds pretty good. 
over the course of two months, we based on, on the phone, uh, you know, and I give this all on Gilk because he did all the, all the heavy lifting. But we, the studio got designed. We had a control room designed by the top guy in Canada. We had <laughs> some of the best recording gear ever. Uh, and we had to record by two early, late 1980, I guess. We had a full-blown 48-track recording studio. Of course, uh, when we wanted to use it, it was rented. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. So uh, we, we had to have someone come in and actually use it, right? That had to be done. So a band out of Vancouver called Duggan the Slugs uh, used it to make their album, which went gold in Canada, by the way. But they loved it. Uh, the, the sound that came out of there was good. It's, um, uh, it was just an incredibly pleasing experience for them. So then we go in there for Allied Forces, and we spend weeks rehearsing songs and rewriting them and rewriting the hooks, rewriting the verses, coming up with better intros, better solos. And then we were ready to make a record, finally, right? So, and I think that record really was the one that set us apart 100%. Uh, you know, it had, you know, Magic Power and Fight the Good Fight and... Just it was um, it was a game changer. Just be, you know, the studio was definitely a major, major part of that. Plus, we had become a little better as writers and performers and musicians, etc. And being able to say, just because we wrote it, uh, doesn't mean you know that it smells really good. You know, shit is shit. It always smells bad. So we were able, to, <laughs> we, we, we were able to go. You know what? Because we could then go and in that demo process, we go, okay, let's lay down a you know, bed track. So we have drums, bass, guitar, put a scratch vocal on it and go, that song really stinks. <laughs> <laughs> you can't repair it. There's no way that you could, you could work on it for 10 years. It'll never get any better than what it is. And, you know, hit the erase button and it disappeared forever. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's so funny everybody thinks of canadians as being gentle uh maybe not willing to give their opinion on things and uh, you've just uh you know went counter to that mike <laughs> well yeah i'm 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 the anti-apathetic canadian <laughs> I, I i don't like canadians for that because they go oh well gee whiz you know, and I guess I spent a lot of time in America early on in my life and, and you know, and met people that were hardcore Democrats or hardcore Republicans in Canada. Nobody's hardcore. They just go, oh, well, I guess I have to vote. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess that's just the way it is. <laughs> Uh, so the documentary, I love the documentary. Oh my God, uh, uh, rock and roll machine. Um, talk about uh, the process of of working on that and how that felt, sort of going back in time. Well, it's it's really a weird kind of experience because it started, I would say, around I'm going to say 2015. When it first began, it's uh, you know it, it's embryonic stage, 
And it was uh, a friend of ours named Brian Houston and a director named Don Allen. Now, Don had done a ton of Triumph videos. They got together and said, you know, we should, we should get the boys to make a film. And so that's kind of started. Uh, it's a kind of went, yeah, that sounds good. And then there was a screenwriter hired and Don went about business trying to raise funds and that. Now, in Canada, you get a lot of government funding if you're smart and you play the game right. So he, Don did a great job, but he was really lousy at getting funding. <laughs> um, so it kind of went by the wayside for a while. And then it kind of reared its ugly head again, I guess, early 2019, when we said to Don, Don, either we got to do something or, you know, you're out, you know. And he said, well, let me go to the boys at Banger Films and see if we could do some kind of co-production. Uh, they said, sure, we're in. And they went and raised the rest of the money that was needed. And then we still went to work on it. And they wanted to do something, you know, because they had done, you know, Iron Maiden and Alice Cooper and Rush. You know, and they were like the gold standard of guys doing rock docs. But they wanted to do something different with us. They wanted to tell the story of the band from the point of view of, here are three guys that kind of came from nowhere and uh, and built this incredible career. And, and how did they do it? And how did the fans react? And let's not make it all about, well, here's a picture of Mike having dinner with his parents. Isn't that swell? You know? Uh, they wanted to, you know, to have the fans engaged with it too, which I thought they did a great job to make it more like a movie than a documentary. And I, th I think they, they, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when I look at the finished product, I think they did an absolutely incredible job. It pushes all the buttons, you know. It makes you laugh. It makes you cry. It makes you happy. It makes you angry. So uh, where can folks uh, see it uh, uh, right now? Uh, it debuted on Access TV uh, last week, I think. Um, you can rent, rent or buy it on Amazon and through our merch store. So tell me about the tribute album that uh, produced by Mike Klink. Tell me about that. So the tribute album, Mike Klink, who's you know, one of the great record producers of all time, you know, he did Appetite for Destruction, um, White Snake, you name it, he's Don Botley crew. He's, he thought there'd be a good idea to do a Triumph tribute record. So I uh, went to Roundhill Music, who owns our recording rights, got a budget, and went to work, basically. So it's really his project. Uh, you know, we have a little bit of input into it. But there's some incredible people on it, you know, like, uh, you know, vocal-wise, got Mickey Thomas and Tyler Connolly and Larry Gowan and Joey Belladonna and Sebastian Bach, amongst others. And the players from Phil X to Brian Titchy to Tommy Aldrich to Nita Strauss to Bumblefoot. It's like he's got great players. And what I've heard so far has been really good. Uh, awesome. So that should be out in the, uh, in the they're, they're hoping he'll be finished in a couple of weeks and have it available by the summertime. Well, I think folks should check out triumphmusic.com too, because uh, it not only uh, updates what's going on uh, as far as uh, the dock and uh, other cool happenings, but it's also where folks can get limited edition uh, vinyl, right? Yeah, there's lots of vinyl going on. 
you know, colored vinyl more than just straight vinyl, like neat colors and that kind of thing. So it's all limited edition stuff. And a lot of it is existing product, but a lot of it's going to be uh, a totally unheard of live stuff that we found at our vaults and that are, you know, maybe we'll do a bootleg series, you know, won't be the greatest quality because they're bootlegs, but it'd be fun to have that out too. Well, Mike, in closing, what would we do in our life if we didn't have music? Man, that would be, I, I don't think life would be anything. You know, you figure that music touches everybody in some way, shape or form on a daily basis. So um, I think it's more important than a car, although, you know, you still need a car to listen to music sometimes. <laughs> but um, uh, it, music is one of the great experiences, entertainment experiences you'll ever have. Plus, it's, it's got emotion to it. And, you know, the letters that we get, I think it's referred to in the doc, that we get, we get letters from people how music changed their lives, you know, our music in particular. But everybody's music touches somebody in some way. And, uh, you know, it's something that I think all, all musicians, all recording artists, you know, all promo guys, all radio guys should be very proud of. They contribute to that whole process. Well, I got to thank you for all the music that uh, you and the band uh, certainly gave us, gave me. Um, I hear from friends from back in the day that say, you know, I was just listening to the radio and magic power came on and I thought of our time together, you know, it just brings you back. So I, I can't thank you enough for all of that and all of our, our uh, hijinks together as well. And I'm really grateful that uh, we were on taking a walk. Well, it's a pleasure to be walking with you, Buzz. You're, you're, you're a hero in my books. Uh, you're the man. Thank you very much. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart. 
in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.